This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Good evening. I just want to thank uh, David Solomon for arranging such a beautiful uh, thing. Very smart to uh, first satisfy the body, and then the neshama is free to enjoy as well. I'd like to also thank Yossi Botnik for also arranging and for inviting me. We're holding right before Rosh Hashanah. The only thing between us and Rosh Hashanah right now is the Shabbos, which means we've already plowed through the whole Elul. We've gone through a few days of sleepless already, and all we have in between us and Rosh Hashanah right now is the Shabbos. So we know what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to improve ourselves, supposed to be davening a little better, learning some more, being nicer to people. And yet, before we know it, it's going to be Yom Kippur. But somehow, we often find ourselves a little anxious as the sun begins to set on Erev Yom Kippur. And the same with Rosh Hashanah. So what is it? If we prepare ourselves, why do we feel anxious before Rosh Hashanah and even more anxious before Yom Kippur? After all, we're not going to be perfect. We weren't meant to be perfect. So why do we get nervous if we tried before Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur to prepare ourselves? And does that mean we're always meant to be nervous before Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur? So first of all, we have to know, a very important saying is not to throw away the good because of the perfect. Just because a person can't be perfect doesn't mean you can't be good. We're meant to try our best. We're not meant to be perfect. And the truth is, trying our best is our perfection. And therefore, I think our job before Rosh Hashanah and Kippur is to stretch ourselves a little, to try to show our love for Kaddish Baruch Hu, and then in return feel the love from a Kaddish Baruch Hu. It's interesting that the Swarm tell us that a person should try to improve himself even if it's only for a set amount of time. In fact, it's brought down that many people have a minig, it's brought down a lachet to accept upon themselves certain things, even if it's only going to be for sarsimei tshuva. For example, a person is not careful all year with pasisrol. During sarsimei tshuva, he should be careful. That is very interesting because very often we accept kabbalas upon ourselves, and naturally they, they begin to uh, they evaporate. But to accept a, pola, a Kabbalah upon ourselves with an expiration date is unusual. We're going to be better, but only for a certain time. After Kajvok is gone, we can, uh, we're safe. We can go back to uh, regular life. So what's the purpose of accepting a Kabbalah with an expiration date? That's interesting. In Yeshiva, before PTA, I always go around to the bathroom. I tell them they have to clean up the room, put the books away, clean off the window shelves, the window sills, put the sneakers away put this farm away. And they always say the same things. I don't understand. Our parents are coming here. They want to see what the yeshiva looks like. So I always tell them, the marshal that's set over of this city, they get a message, the king in two months is coming to visit. So the, busy, the city is busy cleaning, painting, preparing. And this little girl turns to her mom and says, Ma, I don't understand. Why are we preparing for the king this way? That's not how we live. We don't always live so neat. The lawns aren't so clean. The houses aren't always painted. Why are we doing this? Doesn't the king want to see how we really live? So the lady looks at her daughter and says, Mamala, if the king wanted to see how we really live, the king would have just showed up. The king gave us a warning. 
The king said, in two months from now, I'm coming to visit. The king wants to see, how do you prepare for me when you know I'm coming to visit? So I tell the boys, the Bachman, it's the same thing. A parent can drop off in yeshiva anytime, pop in yeshiva anytime they want. And they'll see how the yeshiva looks. It's pretty good anyways. But by PTA, they know that we know that they're coming. So they want to see how do we prepare for when they come. And it's the same thing with us by El. Because Baruch tells us in the beginning of El, I'm showing up. I'm coming. He wants to see how do we prepare to meet the Kaddish Baruch Hu. And the Kaddish Baruch Hu warns us and he tells us, or not warns us, he notifies us that he's going to be coming. And that is what El is about, is that we know Kaddish Baruch Hu is coming and we have to improve ourselves and that's why we accept Kabbalahs upon ourselves even though it's going to stop when Yom Kippur comes. But that doesn't mean we're not supposed to try to accept Kabbalahs upon ourselves. We're not supposed to be the same every Rosh Hashanah, every year. We're supposed to go and try and improve, improve ourselves. And we all know, the Sorum tell us, what type of Kabbalah are we supposed to accept? A very small Kabbalah. You're supposed to think of the smallest Kabbalah you can accept, and then you take that Kabbalah, you cut it in half, and maybe even cut it in half again, and now you have a chance to keep that Kabbalah. It's well known that the uh, Rav by the Gulf War, people were coming to him, what should we do, what should we do? He said, you should accept a small Kabbalah upon yourselves, very small. So somebody once asked him, Rosh Hashiva, what Kabbalah did you accept? So Shach looked and he said, you know, I was Makabal upon myself to daven, to bench, only from a bencher. Only from a bencher. He's quiet for a moment, then he looks at the fellow, he says, but only the first bracha. Only the first bracha. He's quiet and looked at a person, he said, I'll tell you the truth, but it was also only at home. Not when I go to a simplify, I go somewhere else. Oh, and one more. It was only on Shabbos. This way, I can keep the Kabbalah. So who are we talking about? We're talking about Shach, the Avi Ezri. He's Mechabal to bench from a bencher. The first bracha, only on Shabbos, only at home. And this is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to take a Kabbalah, a very small Kabbalah, and try, and try to uh, do it. Unless we think, what do you mean? We've got bigger problems. We've got bigger things. Why should I accept a small Kabbalah? So you know out there, they always, they're advertising always these, how to get rid of your debt. And they always say, you attack your small debt first. You owe money, you attack your small debt first. Why? Because you see progress this way. The same thing. If every year you take a very, very small Kabbalah and you're able to keep it, then the next year you're able to move on from there. So I was thinking, obviously I'm not here to tell you what Kabbalah can take. We all know what we're supposed to do. But I was thinking maybe that if you would think perhaps along different lines of a type of Kabbalah, and we take a type of Kabbalah of a small, of a, a little attitude adjustment. Maybe that would make a, a big difference. We would get a lot of return for that type of Kabbalah. Let me explain. If I were to ask you to picture the holiest person in Klai Yisrael, throughout our history, what position does the holiest person in Klai Yisrael have? Anybody? Shepherd. Say, God. The Kain Gadol, what will be the holiest day of the year? It's Yom Kippur. Where will the holiest place be? In the base of Mikdash. So I ask you to think now in your mind, what's the holiest person doing on the holiest day of the year in the holiest place? He's doing the Vaidah of Yom Kippur. What's he wearing? I thought he's wearing the Shemayin of If you would 
add anything to that, it wouldn't be good. Anything be subtracted, it wouldn't be good. Can't be any additions, any subtractions, any substitutions, only the Shemayin of God. Why? What's so special about the clothing that the kind God wears? I mean, after all, it looks very nice, but it's so important, it has to be exact. What's so special about it? So the Gemara in Zvachim, the Gemara in Erechim tells us the different powers that the clothing of the kind God will have. For example, he wears an avnate. That helps for tshuva for hirer alev. He wears an ephod. That helps for the chait of avayda zara. He wears a me'il. It helps for lashon hara. He wears a tzitz. That helps for mechaper for chutzpah. It's nefes for gasi haruach. And on and on. The katanis for shvichas damim. The mitasayim for gila rayas. It goes through every piece of clothing that he wears. Yet the only thing that's missing doesn't tell us the ramifications and the consequences of the kain gadol wearing shoes. What do the shoes do for the kain gadol? So we all know the answer. What do the shoes do for the kain gadol? So you know, you can't wear shoes. The kain gadol can't wear shoes. In fact, not only could the kain gadol not wear shoes in the base of Mikdash, the kahanim can't wear shoes in the base of Mikdash. They're not permitted to do the avayda with shoes. In fact, no one is allowed to wear shoes in the base of Mikdash. The question is why? What's so wrong with wearing shoes? Where do we learn this thing that you can't wear shoes? So there's many different makayers that Ramban himself brings down that we learn it from the first encounter with Maishu Rebbeinu and Akadosh Baruch Hu. It says Maishu Rebbeinu was shepherding the sheep of Yisrael, his father-in-law. One of the sheep ran away. He chased it until he saw the burning bush. And he goes there. And over there, Hashem speaks to him. But Yehman, he says... Maisha, Maisha. He says, V'yemri name, here I am. Then he says, V'yemri, Atigraf Alayim. Don't come any closer. Shalna lechum yaraglach. Remove your shoes from your feet. Kiyamokim ashat. Aymer alav. The place that you're standing. Admas Kaidashi. Admas Kaidashu. It's a holy place. From here, the Ramban learned, when you go to a holy place, the base of Migdash, you're not permitted to wear shoes. The question is, why? What's so sacrilegious about wearing shoes? What's, what's the gross irreverence of wearing, going into a, a, a holy place and wearing shoes? I mean, if I were to ask you, think about the holiest person you ever encountered. The biggest tzaddik you ever met, or you saw a picture of. Now imagine if you had a source of diving next to this person on Rosh Hashanah. You're diving this person, sure, you walk inside, and sure enough, somehow or another, you end up with a seat right next to him. You imagine the davening. I would daven in yeshiva, I remember and tells. I was davening behind Rav Gifter. I would watch him daven. On the other hand, Rav Isaac Osband. These people stood still, the whole, Rosh, the whole Yom Kippur. They didn't move. Can you imagine davening in Rosh Hashanah? This coming Rosh Hashanah next to a tremendous tzaddik. So while you're picturing this, I would ask you to take a moment during your davening and look down at the person. And look at his shoes. Or look at his feet. I could bet you dollar to donuts he's wearing shoes. This big tzaddik on Rosh Hashanah is wearing shoes in shul. What happened to this business of not wearing shoes in a holy place? Why is this big tzaddik wearing shoes? I'd venture to say we're all sitting in the shul now. Don't look too closely, but if you look around, I'm sure the person next to you is wearing shoes. Why? If it's not supposed to wear shoes in a holy place, why are we all wearing shoes over here? What is it about shoes that we can't wear them in the base of Mikdash? Onion Kippur. There are things we're not allowed to do on Yom Kippur. 
You can't wear shoes on your kipper. Wearing shoes is the only thing that even children can't do on your kipper. Again, we can't wear shoes. We can't wear shoes on Tishabov. They can't go up to Dukhan. They can't wear shoes. What's this business? What do we have against shoes so much? Now, all the time we're doing something special, we can't wear shoes. I think perhaps we can understand this if you look at the first part of the Pasuk. Look at the words of the first part of the Pasuk. He says, V'yemer Moshe, Moshe, and V'yemer Hinein, he answers Hinein. And then he says, V'yemer Al-Tigrav Alain, do not come any closer. Shal Na'alecha, remove your shoes, Mi'al-Raglecha, from your feet. Now think for a moment. Where else do people wear shoes? That Kodesh Baruch had to tell Moshe, Moshe, remove your shoes from your feet. Because otherwise Moshe would have thought to remove them from somewhere else. Akash Baruch has to tell Maisha, remove your shoes from your feet. These are extra words. Could have just said, Shal Nalech, remove your feet. Maisha understands. Okay, I got, remove your shoes. They're on my feet. Why did Akash Baruch have to tell Maisha, remove your shoes from your feet? And I think the Pshat is that the issue is not the shoes per se. There's no issue with the shoes. You can all keep your shoes on. There's no issue with the shoes. The issue is that the shoes are separating the feet from the ground. What's so bad if the shoes separate the feet from the ground? Let me explain like this. Can you imagine for a second your daily routine that you go through every day? How would your daily routine change if you didn't have shoes or socks? Imagine you get up in the morning, you get dressed, you're ready to go to show. You've got everything you've got, but no socks and no shoes. How would your daily schedule change? Besides everybody looking at you. How would it change? The answer is, it wouldn't change much, but everything you would do would have to be done much, much slower. Much, much more deliberate. Every step that you take, you have to look down. You don't want to step on something uncomfortable. You don't want to step on something that's dirty. You don't want to cut yourself. And stomachs, they're pebbles. You have to walk very slow. That's what happens if you don't have shoes. In this passage over here, this is when Moshe Rabbeinu was becoming the leader of Klai And this is what Hashem was telling Moshe Rabbeinu. You're becoming the leader of Klai You have to know that the most important character trait of a leader is empathy. A leader of Klai has to be empathic to the people that he is leading. And therefore, Hashem tells Moshe, Remove your shoes from your feet. You know why? The place that you're starting to enter now, this position that you're going to have, it's a holy place. You are now becoming the leader of Klai Yisrael. Remove your shoes, and this way you're going to understand that you have to do everything much more carefully, much more deliberate, and you have to think of what you're going to do. And therefore, when you move your shoes, you can't just do whatever you want. You can't just walk somewhere without thinking or say something without thinking. When you don't wear shoes, you're thinking about everything that you're doing. And that is what a leader has to be. He has to have empathy for the people. He has to have an empathic character trait and personality. In fact, we find the same thing when Yeshua became the leader. Right before Yeshua is about to enter an Eretz Yisrael, the beginning of Yeshua, Perak again Hashem says, the Malach tells him, the same thing. Why? Because Yeshua is going to be the leader. When he's going to be the leader, you have to go and be empathic. You have to have you have to think for the people that you're leading. Why? Why is it so important? 
The leader has to make sure that people are doing the right thing. Why does he have to be concerned how the people feel? As long as the people do the right thing, everything will be fine. That's not the way a leader of Kaiso works. Why not? If Sadiq writes in Rasisalila that one of the main functions a yid has in this world is to be machaya another yid. Is to make another yid happy, to make another yid feel good. He goes so far as to say, the Sheikh's gonna come, we're gonna have a Sanhedrin. People are still gonna do a virus. So one day you're gonna see, Sanhedrin is looking to fill a position. They need somebody to give Malchus. Say, oh, it's pretty good for an afternoon job. I can give Malchus, I'm good at that. You check the pay, and you're ready to go. So to Tzadik, don't do it. Don't do it. Why shouldn't I do it? This is Sanhedrin. You don't get better than that. This is Sanhedrin. Don't do it. Don't be the one to cause Tzad to another Yid. It could be the best reason. He could deserve it. Let somebody else. Time to shirk your duty. Let somebody else do it. Your job is to mechaya another Yid. Your job is to make another Yid feel good. And therefore, if you're the leader of Pali Yisrael, that is definitely your job. Let's say somebody sees somebody and he needs help. But you don't have any money to give him. You don't have any connections to help him. You don't have the expertise that he needs. So then what do you do? How do you help the person then? What happens if you don't have what he needs? There's another way to be Imai Naifi Bitsara. You know, there's a fellow in Miami involved in a shul. And the shul every year has a lot of malka. And the shul had a grand lot of malka, went to Shabbos. And the, the rabbis, everyone's there. And the rabbis goes over to the fellow, and he sees this fellow. He's just walking around, and he says, you know, I don't understand. We have an ice cream bar here. Why aren't you taking ice cream? I know you like ice cream. Why don't you take some ice cream? He says, Rabbi, no ice cream for me tonight. Come on, are you on a diet? You can go and take some ice cream. You can handle it. I know you like ice cream. Rabbi, it's okay. I'm not taking any ice cream. Everything okay? So Rabbi, I'll tell you the truth. You remember a few weeks ago, you gave a speech, and the rockets were falling on Sterot. The Arabs were throwing rockets at the Yidin in Sterot. And you said, we should all try to do something. We should all be macabre something upon ourselves. So what should I say? I can't go join the army. I can't write a check. Nothing I can do but shooting down the missiles. So I'm going upon myself while the Eden are being subjected to these missiles falling in Sterot, I'm not going to eat any ice cream. This is my way of being and therefore I have not eaten any ice cream since then. When you think about it, you think the people in Sterot felt much better because this guy in Miami wasn't eating ice cream. So as the missiles were landing, don't worry, that guy's not eating ice cream, we're good. It didn't happen. So what does what, what he gain by not eating ice cream? We all know the well-known answer. The person wants to hang up a picture. So he has the hammer. He puts the nail over there. He gives a whack and he hits the nail. But he hit the wrong nail. He hits his thumbnail. He's screaming in pain. Obviously, this hand is not going to hit the other hand. Because we're one body. And when we go and we show that I'm in pain because you're in pain, because Baruch who sees that my children are together. That they realize they come from the same source. As the Svah says, all you can come from the same source. And if one person's in pain, if you're from the same source, you should feel the same thing. In fact, there was once a girl from high school. She was in 10th grade. She was on the phone. 
And her parents over here, she gives a scream, a loud scream. And they start listening, what's going on? They hear her say, yay, tonight I can sleep with a pillow. And she speaks another few more minutes, and she comes downstairs. And her father says, well, what's going on? She says, nothing. She says, what do you mean? I heard you talking on the phone. Yeah, I'm talking on the phone. I always talk on the phone. He said, no, no, but you said something about sleeping with a pillow tonight. He says, oh, I'll tell you the truth. My principal has been very sick. She had a terrible disease, and she was in the hospital for the past few weeks. So my class got together, and we each took upon a Kabbalah upon ourselves. So I was macabre not to sleep with a pillow while my principal is still in the hospital. I just got news that she's being released from the hospital. So tonight, I can sleep with a pillow. Do you think her principal felt any better that she wasn't sleeping with a pillow? The answer is a Kaddish Baruch saw that one year is in Sar for another year. And that has tremendous ramifications. And we shouldn't think that it doesn't have. Because would anybody be surprised to know that that girl who didn't sleep with the pillow, without telling her parents, was the daughter of that person who wasn't eating ice cream? These things spread. People can tell when someone else is nice of al People can tell, people can feel, people are affected when other people are Imei Nechi even though logically you don't see the connection. And the truth is, this is, this is where Hashem was teaching Maisha when he's becoming the leader, as we said, the issue is make sure that you can feel where you're going. However, Hashem, the consummate, Mechanech, doesn't just tell Maisha what to do. There's this person who was once complaining to somebody, he says, what should I do? My kids don't listen when I talk to them. So the guy says, don't worry about your kids listening to what you say. You should be more concerned that they're watching what you do. But a Kodesh Baruch Hu doesn't work like that. But a Kodesh Baruch Hu, when he tells Maisha to do something, he teaches by example. It's interesting. Although in the first conversation Hashem has with Maisha, he teaches him to tell him to be an empathic leader. But Hashem's first communication with Maisha, as opposed to his conversation, his first communication with Maisha was how to be Imei Bitsara. Because Rashi says that a Kodesh appears to him, the Yikri Lav Elikim Itaychasne. He appears to him, Itaychasne, from the bush. So Rashi, Itaychasne, Velayilanacher, but not from any other tree. Why did Hashem appear to Maisha in a, in a lowly thorn bush? Hashem should have appeared to Maisha in this majestic elm tree, this big, tall elm tree. That's how he should have appeared to Maisha. Why is he appearing to Maisha in a lowly thorn bush? And Rashi answers, He wanted to show Maisha, Klaus was a Mitzrayim, I'm in a thorn bush. I'm not sitting on this great big elm tree. That's what he's showing. That's what he's showing Maisha. And in fact, this is so important that this is Hashem's introduction to Maisha. You ever go to a convention, they have a sign, Hello, my name is? Hello, my name is? Hashem could have introduced himself. We're so busy saying the Yudgil Midas so many times now. Hashem, Hashem, Hashem Lefneachet, Hashem Acharachet, Kel, Rachum. Yet Hashem did not choose any of those to introduce himself to Maisha Rebbeinu. His introduction to Maisha Rebbeinu is, Hello, my name is? Because that is the most important character trait you can have when you're dealing with other people. And of course, Maisha Rebbeinu himself displayed this Mida. When the Pasuk tells us, Vigdal Maisha, Maisha grew up, he was in the palace the whole time, 
different opinions what age he was. Rashi he was 16 years old. He went out to his brothers. Why did he go out to his brothers? He wanted to see them with their burdens. Now, he could have just stayed inside the palace. There was a big picture window. Looking outside, watching as the Jews are getting hit and whipped and working. But Moshe didn't want to do that. But Yar Bisiv Laisam. What does Rashi say? What's the Bisiv Laisam? It's just a Yar Siv Laisam. He saw their burdens. What does it mean? You want to see in their burdens? It's a Rashi. Nosan Eino. He put his eyes, believing his heart. Liye Mitzar To be in pain over them. He could have easily avoided them. But he put himself in a position to be in Sar with them. Because he wanted to show that he's part of Klai Yisrael. He's Imai Neiche Bitsar. The Medrash tells us he went out to help them. He physically helped them. He physically was going and, and moving the rocks, moving the stones with them to be Imai Neiche Bitsar. What happens if somebody can't do that? If someone can't go out and help you move the stones, if someone doesn't have the wherewithal to help you, what happens then? Akash Baruch showed us what to do then as well. Later on, in Parshat Mishpatim, the Pasi tells us a very interesting thing. Pasi in Perach of Dalit, Pasi Yud says, the U.S. Elokei Yisrael, they saw Akadosh Baruch Hu, v'sachas raglov, and they saw what was under his feet, k'masi livna sasapir. It was a sapphire brick. Fred Rashi, why was there a sapphire brick under under Akadosh Baruch Hu's feet? Rashi says, he Hashem kept the sapphire brick in front of him, while the Eden were Mitzrayim. Why did he do that? In order to remember the pain of Yisrael, who were enslaved while they had to work with bricks. Because who said, if Christ was going to be sitting there working with bricks, I'm not going to sit here and be so comfortable either. And therefore he sat there with the bricks. Because Baruch shows us that it's true. Even though there's nothing you can do to help the person, you still can show that you are with them, with Imai Naiki Bitsar, to feel the pain. You know, uh, during World War II, Ryan Cutler and Ms. Rabbitson managed to come to America. They arrived in San Francisco by boat on a Friday. He quickly made his way to New York. And while he was there, he immersed himself in the Tzal's Nefashas, helping save Eden. Ms. Rabbitson was right behind him, supporting him in everything he did. One day, the Rebetzin gets a knock on the door, and she opens up the door, and there was a childhood friend of hers was there, come to visit her, to welcome her to New York. She's been there a few weeks. Rebetzin Kala is very excited, invites her in, they sit down, she goes quickly, she makes two teas, she brings it down, she puts the tea down, she puts the sugar, and the other lady's not drinking her tea. So Rebetzin Kala makes a rough one, she drinks, starts to drink her tea. The other lady says... Rebetzin, why don't you take some sugar? Yeah, I don't want sugar. He says, Rebetzin, if there's not enough sugar, tell me, I'm not going to take either. Things are tight, I understand. No, it's okay, I don't want sugar. He says, Rebetzin, I remember you since a little girl. You have a sweet tooth. You really like sugar. What's going on? What's wrong with the sugar? So I'll tell you the truth. I hear what's going on every day by the war. Even they're getting slaughtered. I was a cobble upon myself. I like sugar so much and I have a sweet tooth. You're right. I'm not going to touch any sugar while the Yidin are getting killed in Europe. And again, this is to show, whatever you can do, as much as she's going, she's helping her husband for itself, the fascists, she had to take something personally. She's not going to have, she's not going to have sugar while her fellow Yidin are being killed. 
And if we really can't do anything, if we really can't do anything, we really can't give anything up. We don't have, we don't know what to do. So then we learn from Nassim Tzvi, Nassim Tzvi Finkel, the great mirror of Shiva. Those are the schus to see him as he progressed in his illness. It got more and more difficult for him, his Parkinson's, and he got weaker and weaker. And one day, a young man came to him, and Nassim Tzvi was so weak, he was lying on the couch. And this young man had a terrible problem. He had a child who was very, very ill. He just came back from the doctor and things didn't look good. He came, he came to speak to Roshiva to get a bracha. Roshiva Shaddam for him. But the Roshiva was completely spent. He had no kayak. So the fellow sits down and he starts to pour out his heart to Roshiva. Roshiva's lying there and he starts to move his lips. The person bent over, put his ear by the Roshiva's lips. And he heard a Nostasi said, I don't have any kayak. To Davin, you sit here and say Tilim, and I'll lie on the couch and cry for you. And Kachav, the person sat there and said Tilim, and the Roshiva lay on the couch and cried for him. We can always do something for somebody else. There's no such thing that I can't do. We can always cry for another year if we have to. And sometimes, even if we can't do anything, and even if we don't feel that way, we can't cry for the person. Sometimes, it even costs us to do something. Sometimes it can even cost us personally physical pain to do something for another year. Plus it tells us in Shemais and Perik Hay, Pasig Yadalit, Tevin ain't not Avadim. It goes on to tell us what's going to happen to, to, uh, to the Yidden, not going to give them, not going to give them straw anymore. And the guards had to go and hit them and make them work. And Rashi explains that what was going on. So Rashi is very interesting. The Shaitrim, the guards were Yisraelim. The Chosim They had too much pity on the rest of the Yidden. When they would turn over the bricks, the Mitzrayim would see they didn't make enough bricks. So who would the Mitzrayim hit? The Mitzrayim would hit, when they would see the Zayinaf, how you Malkim Aisam, they would hit the Yiddish guards. Why they hit the Yiddish guards? Because they didn't pressure the Yidden to make more bricks. Which means the Yidden had to make a certain amount of bricks. And the Yidden, the Jewish guards, didn't want to beat them for that. They helped them as much as they could, but when there weren't enough bricks, they got hit. What was their scar because of that? The Fichach Zachu Aisam Shaitrim Liyaisen Hedrim. They became members of the Sanhedrin. If you're ready to go and take physical pain for another yid, you're worthy to be a leader in Klai Yisrael. Now you wonder, that's very nice, but I'm going to go ask this guy, is my chicken kosher or not? Just because you may not have how do I know the, kid, the chicken's kosher? So Rashi says, Some of the ruach of Kedesh that was on Maisha, the Haisha Malayim was put on them. And what's chus? Because of Imei Neichi, Sometimes it could be a financial loss. There was a rov in a city high in the Carpathian Mountains called Arshava. Arshava was actually the first place where the Sama Rav, Benayel, became, got his first teller as a rov. In the early 1900s, there was a rov there, and this rov was very well liked in the community, and he had an open house. People would always come inside, a shyless, that's where the things were happening in town. 
And this Rav got from his father, who got from his grandfather, four generations back, a beautiful heirloom. They had a silver box for tabak. And this Rav felt so close to it. It was beautiful, it was ornate, it was expensive. And it was from his family for many generations. And he would only take it out on Shabbos. Every year of Shabbos he would take it out. He would smell it, and the island would smell it. One hour of Shabbos, he's getting ready for Shabbos, he goes to the place, opens up the drawer to take it out, it was missing. It turns white. He asks his wife, did you see it? Were you cleaning it? Didn't touch it. The Hasidim that were there, the Tamidim that were there, they start searching and searching, no box. Shabbos comes, he tried to forget about it, couldn't find it. The whole week he's looking for it, and they realize it's gone. It's gone. About three years later, one of the people from the town of Arshua made a business trip to Eretz Yisrael by boat. When he was there, he wrote a letter to a landsman, someone else from this town, who moved to Eretz Yisrael, moved to Tveria. And he asked him, when I come, can I stay by you? He said, of course. He comes to Eretz Yisrael, he does what he has to do, and he goes to Tveria for Shabbos to stay with this person. And it's Friday night, after Kiddush, this fellow takes out this box of tabak, this guy's eyes open up wide. He looks at it. It looks very familiar. That's the Rav's box. He's scared to say anything. Shabbos goes on. After Avdal, he says, tell me, where did you get that box from? So what do you mean? Well, somebody was here and they needed money. They sold it. He says, are you sure? Because the Rav would never sell that. And that looks exactly like the one the Rav has. The person realized he was caught. He got all red. He says, you know, you're right. I took it, I shouldn't have. You're going back tomorrow, take it back and give it to him, and I apologize. This guy is so excited. He can't wait, he can't, he can't hold himself back, he's on the boat. He finally gets back to the town, he runs to the rope, the first place that he goes, he knocks on the door, the rope opens up, and he says, look what I got you from Eretz Yisrael. He says, you got me something from Eretz Yisrael? He goes, yes, but it's not really from Eretz Yisrael. He says, what are you talking about? He takes out the box and he gives it to him. The rope's eyes open up wide. He takes it, he looks at it, he says, Wow, how'd you get this? And the person spills the beans. He says, well, I was in so-and-so's house. He had it, he stole it. He apologizes, he wants you to be Michael. He's looking at it, he opens it up, he makes a broch and he smells it. He's caressing it. There are tears coming down his eyes. And after a few minutes, he turns to the guy and says, thank you so much. And he takes his hand, he takes the box, and he puts it in the chassid's hand. He closes his hand. He says, I want you to have it. He says, you want me to have it? Why do you want me to have it? This is yours. You, you wanted it so much. He says, I'll tell you the truth. I did want it so much. But you know what's going to happen? I'm going to take it out every Shabbos to smell it. And I'm concerned that when I take it out to smell, I'm going to think about the guy that stole it. And I'm going to have tainas on him. I'm going to feel a little bad. It's not worth it for me to have it if I'm going to feel bad against this guy. That's not even a Yechibetzara. I'm willing to give up this heirloom in order not to have bad feelings against somebody who stole from me. So you see how far, how far this can go. And with this we can understand what exactly it is when we say a leader has to be Yemayin Yechibetzara. In fact, there's a, a committee once came to Chaim Salvation. They're looking for a Rav. And they said, what should we looking for a Rav? He said, well, what do you think? He said, well, the Rav is to Paskin Shailas. 
Okay, that's true, but a lot of people can pass in Shailas. It's okay, you know, a Rav is to uh, someone else to teach Tyre. Really? Only a Rav teaches Tyre? You put a lot of people out of business. He said, okay, if a Rav is to, to give Teichacha, to give Musr, I'm not everybody accepts Musr from the Rav. So, so what's the Rav for? So you know what the Rav is for? The Rav is to be nice of El Chavere. The Rav is there to see what the people in this Kehillah are missing and to satisfy and to fill their needs. That is the Ikah purpose of a Rav. That's the Ikah purpose of a leader of a Nasi. And with this we can understand our original question of why we don't want shoes all these times. In the Beis English, we know that you're not allowed to be Messiah of Das when you're in the Beis English. You can't just walk around the Beis English and hop a shoes with somebody. The stairs in the Beis English were uneven. Why were they uneven? So when you walk up the stairs, you can't do it by rote. Every step, this one was 6 inches, this one was 12 inches, the next one was 2 inches. You have to concentrate when you walk up the stairs. This way, you're always aware of where you were. But if you weren't wearing shoes, wherever you walked in the Beis Amigdash, you had to watch where you were going. And therefore, once again, you were not Messiah Das from where you're going. On Tisha B'av, Tisha B'av, you don't walk around with shoes. Tisha B'av is a time to Masakim, or Havas Yisrael. If a person doesn't have shoes, he has to think where he's going. And you can go and think about that. The Kohanim go up to Duchen. They have to Duchen Ba'ahava. And again, when you don't have the shoes, that's the message you get. And once again, I mean Kippur. In Kippur is such a holy day. We shouldn't go and just letting the day go by without thinking of what's going on. And therefore, even the children don't wear shoes on your Kippur. How do we know? How do we know if our Imei Neichibetzar is sufficient? How do we know if we're doing enough? There once these two partners who were in business together for many years. One guy's job was to mine the store. The other guy's job was to go out and buy the material. And one day the guy who buys the materials on the way back, and he says, you know what, this is ridiculous. I got to walk around, travel, I don't get to be with my family. The guy in the store, he gets to go home every night, he gets to be with his family, and we split the money 50-50? I don't think so. On the way back, he takes off his hat, he scrunches it up, takes off his jacket, puts it in the mud a little, rips his pants a little, takes the money he just made, buries it, and then he comes back, he tells the guy, sorry, I was robbed. You're robbed? Are you okay? What's going to be? He says, what do you mean? Don't worry about me. The money's gone. Don't worry, I'll pay you back. Who cares about the money? I'm glad you're okay. Three weeks later, he looks at his partner and says, you know what? He looks a little too happy for someone who was just robbed. He goes over to his friend and goes, are you sure? Tell me exactly what happened again. He tells the whole story again. And he says, don't worry, I'll pay you back. Says, no, you have to pay him back. I'm happy you're okay. Then again it happens, and finally, the guy's too suspicious. He says, you know what, let's go to the Rebbe. They went to the Rizhan Rebbe, and they start to see over the story. And the guy says, look, I'm not so sure the money was stolen, I don't know who did it. So the Rebbe says, tell me the story. The guy says over the story, and he starts crying. He says, Rebbe, if I have to pay him back every penny, it'll take me 20 years, I'll pay him back. But my friendship of 25 years I'm going to lose. And he's crying and crying. The Rebbe says, tell me the story again. Tells him the story again, and he's crying, and this happened, and then, but I don't want to lose my friendship with him. And the Rebbe gets up and says, You've got enough, give back the money. He says, Rebbe, I didn't take it. You've got enough, give back the money before I get you whipped. He was so shocked, he broke down, and he says, You're right, I stole the money, I'll pay back. Okay, they leave. The Hasidim over there turned to the Rebbe and said, Oh, the Rebbe's a Baal 
He says, no, 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 Baal Moif is here. So how do you know? So I'll tell you. We learn in the Navi that Chana went to the base of Midas to daven for children. She had no children. Elia Kayin comes. He sees her davening. He says, oh, I shook her. He says, go home, you're a shikha. What are you doing over here? So she says, please, Adani, I'm, not, I'm not a shikha. I'm dying for children. I'm in pain. I'm dying for children. So what's Eli's response? Well, if that's the case, you should go home. It'll be okay. That's his response. What happened to I'm sorry? What happened to I feel bad for you? So he explained. The Sassamus explains. He says that Eli Crane looks at this lady and she's sitting there and she's talking and she's crying. And he looks at her. She must be in pain. And then he wonders. He says, but if she's in pain, how come I'm not in pain? Oh, it must be. She's not in pain. She's a shaker. Shaker, go home. Don't be in the basement just like that. Then she tells me, no, no, I'm in pain. I'm diving for children. Now Eli Ukraine says, uh-oh, what's going on? She's in pain, and I don't feel it? It must be that she was already blessed with children. Akash Boha already decided she's going to have children. And that's why there's no real pain over here. You can go home. You're going to have a child. Kachav, that's what happened. So the reason Rebbe said, I see this Yid in front of me, he's crying and he's crying. It doesn't bother me. It didn't affect me at all. How could it be a Yid's crying and crying and crying, it doesn't affect me? It must be that he's not really in pain. He's just faking. And therefore, that's how I knew that he's the Ghana. So what do we do? Right before Rosh Hashanah, how do we adapt this thing? So if you think... Rabbi Yashiv had a tshuva once that there were, a Rav wrote, writes him a letter. He says, in his kehillah, there's a family that went, their kids went to the army. And against army regulations, somehow what happened, both kids ended up in the same division, and now they're both fighting, and they're assigned to the same tank. They're very nervous. The parents are very nervous. You don't put two brothers in the same tank. Chasmashal, something happens. So Rabbi Yashiv writes back for Kert. These two brothers are going to be together and they get along with each other. The best place is for them to be together because that would be the best shmir for them to be ba'achtas. So I just want to end. So right before Rosh Hashanah, we think to ourselves, we'll accept upon ourselves a small Kabbalah. We think a small Kabbalah, is that going to make a difference? Small little Kabbalah. You should never underestimate the pleasure to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, of a small Kabbalah. We should not think that it doesn't do anything. In 1973, in 1973, Shlomo Karabach was invited to upstate New York to maximum security prison to spend some time with some prisoners. Baruch Hashem, it was a small island, fewer than 10 people. And if Shlomo Karabach says, I don't care how few people, I'm going. He went with two assistants, two fellows, their instruments, a box of latkes, and they drove upstate New York in 1973. They come inside, they check them, they bring them into the room. There's fewer than 10 people there. As you can see, the friend goes over to each guy and gives him a big hug. Brother, how are you? And he gives him a hug. They all sit down. He speaks to them a little. He starts to play. He speaks, gives them chizik, gives them latkes. Their 25-minute slot is over before they knew it, and they get up to leave. They're walking out. They're walking towards the door. Shlema, his two people that came with him, and two guards... As they're getting towards the door, they hear a loud noise. Someone's running. They turn around. 
is this big, burly fellow running towards them. The guards immediately stand in front of Shlema, and the guy stops. He says, Rabbi, can I speak to you for a second? He looks at the guards, the guards look at him and says, okay. He comes over to him and says, Rabbi, thank you. He says, you're welcome, you're welcome. He says, Rabbi, that was the first hug I ever got. I swear to you, if I ever would have received a hug, even once before in my life, I never would have committed those crimes. I wanted to thank you for that hug. Could I have one more? And of course, Hashem went and he gave him a big hug. We think about it. Isn't that what we want? We all want a big hug from a Kaddish Baruch Hu. We want to go and to be embraced in a loving hug from a Kaddish Baruch Hu. And if we go and we improve our Imei Nechim Yitzhara, and Hashem looks down, he says, these are my children. And my children love each other. So Kaddish Baruch Hu is ready to embrace us in his hug. And if we do that, we will have a Ksilafi Vataiva and a Gitka Benshu. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.